Inspired By, a podcast brought to you by Six. Hello, I'm Hannah Wise, and this is Inspired By. In this podcast series, I invite experts from Six and other representatives from the Financial Centre to talk about their inspirations. He's a murderer, a gambler, and a playboy. And I'm not talking about my guest today, but his inspiration, economist John Law. Jörg Müller, Senior Fellow and Head of Research for Infrastructure and Markets at Avenir Swiss, and co-author of the book, The End of Banking. Welcome to you. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and thank you for choosing, yes, a fellow Scot as your inspiration. I'm not quite sure I can say that I'm very proud of him, but I feel that you're going to change my mind here because we've got a lot to discuss. I hope so. There is a lot of reason to be proud of him, to be fair. Okay. Well, let's get our listeners up to speed here because John Law, he fled to Europe after a duel over a woman where he killed his challenger. He then spent many years as a gambler before he founded what was to become the National Bank of France as the country faced a huge debt crisis. Basically, John Law developed the use of paper money. And this is really what we're going to talk about today. But Jörg, what is it about his story that you find most inspiring? And I'm assuming it's not the murderous gambling part of things. <laughs> well, that, that is an, an interesting part of the story, obviously. And it's it's that part of his story that was told over and over again. But behind law, the gambler and the lover, there is the law, the policymaker and the economist. And he was rather advanced for his time, both in terms of actual policymaking, economic policy and economic thinking. Of course, he made some terrible mistakes and in the end, the whole system blew up. But still, he was ahead of the time. And when we talk about time, I should probably clarify that this isn't some kind of recent character. He was around in the late 1600s, early 1700s. Um, so what did he do for France? France was in a lot of debt and, and there, were, there were real problems there. And he kind of came to the rescue. Well, he first came up with the idea of a bank. Uh, well, we, we have to, to recall that back then it was a time of a lot of financial innovation. Like the Bank of England was just founded before and uh, these huge trading companies started to pick up pace, the East India Company. And in England, this really triggered a period of, of prosperity and money started flowing. And in France, as I said, France was in a deep slump. And Law, initially in his first book about economics, he always favored a land bank. But then when he saw the Bank of England prospering, which was not a land bank, but was more monetization of government debt bank. To be fair. So he saw that Bank of England prospering. And then he asked the, the regent, the Duke of Orléans, who was in charge of uh, running France because the successor of uh, Louis XIV was still too young. So he asked the regent if he could set up like a similar scheme like the Bank of England. So to solve the problems of France. And in the beginning, he was only granted permission to set up a, a small bank, the, the General Bank, that was in 1716. And this was more of a, a normal bank, a deposit-taking institution, 
And uh, he ran that quite successfully, but it was not the cure for all the problems of France. But then he had to set up this, this bigger scheme. He came up with this idea to print paper money for France, okay? And it was backed by the government. Why the need to create money? Why do we have money? We need money to, to run our economy, put simply. And law, and that's what I said in the beginning, was interesting because he saw like that there could be a shortage of money. He came up with this idea of a supply and demand of money. And also like with macroeconomic concepts that if you have a shortage of money, that you will have excess unemployment. And so with his scheme, he tried to solve two problems at once. First, the financial crisis. I mentioned the, the huge debt burden of France. And second, this monetary crisis, that there was a shortage of money and that the, uh, the economies in Europe back in the 17th century were trapped in this deflationary spiral. So he tried to solve both at once. And um, at, for some time, he succeeded and then failed spectacularly. So the Mississippi bubble, which is what happened, and that happened because the French national debt was to be paid from the revenues derived from the opening of the Mississippi Valley in the United States. But the problem was that basically the French government couldn't persuade anybody to move over there. Therefore, no crops could be grown or harvested, no exporting, and of course, no revenues. But what's more is that John Law also exaggerated the wealth of this area, and that led to wild speculation on the shares of the Mississippi Company, which John Law also owned. And in fact, the shares were so popular that they sparked a need for more paper bank notes to pay investors for the profits. The problem was that when people tried to convert their paper notes into actual gold and silver en masse, ta-da, the bank couldn't cope, and boom, the bubble burst. Are these still flaws in our current banking system? John Law is a great example because you can expand, expand on money supply by doing banking. Banking is actually the creation of money out of credit. This is banking. This is what John Law did. And this is what the Bank of England did. Now, the Bank of England, probably out of sheer luck, had a nice mechanism built in in its first charter which said that it cannot issue more debt than its capital base. So there was a built-in capital requirement of 50%, which is huge. These ways of thing, equity levels of banks. So the Bank of England had this constraint in how much money you can create. And this prevented the Bank of England from blowing up too much. And John Law and his... Uh, Royal Bank later on, because the General Bank was transformed into a central bank and then merged with the Mississippi Company to a huge conglomerate. And this huge company had no longer this constraint. And what does that mean then for our times? <laughs> this was the beginning of when people started to do banking and to expand the money supply, supply via balance sheets. We would say that, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, okay, we're economists, we have a bit of a weird perception of the world. When we look out in this world, we see companies, and every company for us is just a balance sheet. So 
and how these balance sheets interact is all important for how the financial system works and how prices form and how everything is coordinated. And you can do it right and you can do it wrong. The Bank of England did it right, John Law messed it up. Now, coming back to our time and to the bank, to the end of banking, the book, the problem is that these constraints, uh, those were then institutionalized. You had banking regulations and uh, reserve requirements, liquidity requirements. You always try to constrain the, the growth of these balance sheets. You try to constrain the growth of money supply. But then with the digital revolution, things changed. And this is where our book kicks in. Uh, the, the subtitle is actually Money, Credit and the Digital Revolution, because we think that this management of, of money with banking no longer works in the digital revolution, because these constraints are no longer effective. This constraint to prevent the blow up of balance sheets, they can be circumvented with just a mouse click. You can connect all the balance sheets in this world with just a few mouse clicks. Digitization really changed the game. And this is why we are convinced we have to think fundamentally about how we manage money in our society and how we can go on with banking. Let me ask you this though, what about the expansionary monetary policies that we have at the moment from central banks as we try to cope with this pandemic? Are we effectively printing money now? For sure, we are printing money and uh, we are monetizing government debt to a certain mm -hmm. extent. If you look at Japan with its debt to GDP ratio way over 200%, there you see that uh, a huge proportion of the debt lies on the balance sheet of the central bank. So, I mean, it's hard to say where this will end. And uh, it's something where my co-author and I are researching into in uh, in a new book and then for sure in, in a third book actually we're already started but didn't you didn't you come up with some kind of solution in your first book this systematic solvency rule to prevent crashes in the future we did i would say so i mean this systemic solvency rule is in a way a general constraint on balance sheets in the system we think that in the digital age, it's no longer possible to constrain banking, that is the creation of money out of credit. So like this old Bank of England trick with this capital requirement, which was brilliant, um, that no longer works. You will have this massive um, like creation of money because you, you can interconnect all these balance sheets. So you have to tackle this this problem of excessive money creation by, um, by a balance sheet rule on all balance sheets in the economy. And that's what the systemic solvency exactly does. It prevents that buildup of, of uh, money, of systemic risk in the financial system. So why, if I can ask you this, why aren't we doing this already? Is it because that's just too difficult to do, too much regulation for companies? That's why we are still writing books, <laughs> because uh, in the end, in this first book, in the end of banking, we sort of envisioned the end point where the system is stable, but we didn't envision, we, we didn't show how to get there. So the whole transition part is, is quite tricky, and it's what we are now working on. 
show how we can come into this new decentralized financial system where where you no longer have this banking balance sheets either single bank balance sheets or balance sheets like in, that, that work together and perform the function of banking uh, but instead have this this financial system that is decentralized directly connected without systemic risk but getting there is is a, is a tricky part of so going back to John Law then, uh, would you consider him a successful economist? After everything that we've talked about, his, his own personal boom and bust and everything that he brought to our financial systems, which you spoke about in, in, in the beginning, and of course, all the difficulties he's discovered along the way. Yeah, this is a tough question because obviously he failed in the end. But um, actually, Murphy, an economic historian, um, wrote a brilliant book about John Law. And he, he said that John Law might be a great uh, financier, banker, economist, just as Napoleon was a great soldier despite Waterloo. And I think this gets it quite right, because, I, I mean, he saw things that no, no, none of his contemporary economists saw back then. He uh, he came up with new ideas, new concepts in economics that were quite advanced. And then he also got the opportunity, and that was probably the problem for him. <laughs> he got the opportunity to, to um, like show the world how these ideas could work in practice. He was a policymaker too. And to be fair, most economists never get this opportunity. That's why I chose him. He's a very inspiring person. Yes. His personality and his biography is so multidimensional uh, that it's, it's a fascinating read. And I recommend to every listener to read this book by Murphy. Let me ask you this. You know, what would you ask him or what would you tell him if you sat down to a game of poker with him, for example? Uh, would, you, would you talk to him about capital requirements? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. For sure. I, I mean, I would ask him what he thinks was the biggest mistake in his system, in this Mississippi system, because he was aware that he made mistakes. He always said so. And he also tried to fix it. And it's funny, when the whole thing collapsed, he got uh, put under house arrest. But then he was released of house arrest. And for another six months, he got the chance to fix things. He was not in total discredit. Uh, so... I was wondering, I would ask him what, what he thinks was the biggest mistake and what he would have fixed. And of course, I would ask him what um, he thinks of the contemporary global monetary financial system. But yeah, of course, I, I would start quickly stop playing poker with him. <laughs> you definitely wouldn't play poker with him. I was bound to lose money. So I would rather invite him for, for scotch then and maybe talk about some personal bits and pieces uh, in his biography that have puzzled me. For instance, I would for sure ask him what was the true reason why he killed uh, the Wilson, the guy he uh, dueled back in the uh, end of the 17th century in London, because uh, it was for sure not because of a girl. Um, it was just not plausible that it was just like a romantic affair because um, in the end, the king wanted to pardon law, but he couldn't do this in a formal way. 
and uh, he arranged that Law could escape from prison and that Law was not hanged. So there were some high political stakes involved there, and I would, would be very much interested what was uh, going on back then. Sounds like another topic for a podcast, if you ask me. Uh, Jörg Muller, thank you very much indeed. We're very much looking forward to your new book as well, uh, or your two new books which you're working on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you very much too for joining us for this episode of The Sixth Podcast. And until next time, stay inspired. And you can hear more about inspiring leaders by downloading the six podcast series available wherever you get your podcasts.